0: Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the inaugural episode of my new podcast where I get to interview some of my favorite authors. As someone who enjoys it when smart people write about interesting topics, a podcast seemed like the perfect platform to highlight what I'm reading and why it matters. And there's no one better to share that story than the person who wrote the story. Today, we're kicking off this season with my good friend, Todd Rose, who's written several books that have ideas that intersect with our workforce and education policies here in the state of Florida. Todd is the co-founder of a think tank called Populous, former faculty member and director of the Laboratory for the Science of Individuality at Harvard, and the author of The End of Average, Dark Horse, and Collective Illusions, which will be on bookshelves early next year. Without further ado, here's my interview with Todd Rose. All right, Todd, well, thanks, thanks for joining me. It's great to see you again. You too, thanks for having me. Well, listen, I know we've had an opportunity over the past to get a chance to talk to one another about your previous work and what you've done in the space of individualism and workforce in particular. But I want to get a chance to get some of our folks who might be tuning in to learn about you a little bit, learn about your books. But before we get to your work, I've already mentioned in the introduction your work at the think tank at Harvard, your work on individualism. But you sort of had a non traditional path, uh, I think, to get there by your own admission. So tell us a little bit about. know, your story and how you got to where you are and how it's a little bit, maybe a little bit different than what you'd expect.
1: Yeah. I was a professor for a dozen years. I actually just left Harvard to only do the think tank um, exclusively. uh, And I'm really excited about that. You know, I think people would be surprised to know. I I also was a high school dropout. It's actually even worse than that. Like I, I failed out with a 0.9 GPA, which I actually think it, like you actually have to work really hard to do that poorly. <laughs> like, I, like I, I couldn't even get social promotion. Right. But um, I felt really early on the damage that comes with a profoundly bad fit between who you are as an individual and the system you're engaging in. And, you know, I know personally that I internalized most of that as I just am stupid. Right. I'm just not very smart. You know, I ended up on welfare right after I filled out my girlfriend who's still my wife today. Um, Found out she was pregnant, so it was a it was a good October, right? Um, <laughs> but uh, so we yeah ended up working a string of minimum wage jobs, uh, was on welfare, and just knew that I needed to do something. Um, and one of the things I'm forever grateful for is, at our best, we're a country of of second chances, and I'm grateful that um, I was able to go to Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, open enrollment and have a shot to turn my life around. And it was through that journey that I ended up learning a lot about myself, about my own individuality, and how to harness that. And that led me to graduate at the top of my class, um, and get into Harvard for my doctorate. And then the rest is kind of history.
0: It's awesome. I, I think it's interesting, you know, they always say, you know, take your individual experiences, pay it forward, you've literally taken that and and not only paid it forward, but really sort of come out with guides uh, for people who are who have you know, lived through or are living through what you did um, in the form of your writings and books and, and, and publications. So, I, you know, you mentioned um, in particular, I, I'm in this system, right, where I just don't feel like it was ma- tailored for me or made for me. And uh, I think it's interesting to kind of talk about your first book, End of Average, which I remember I, I was reading on a plane and ironically, you had this example while I'm on the plane about a plane and how planes were made. I think it was back in World War II. Right. You used that to kind of kind of start this conversation about how we create systems and, and how they impact people. So, so tell us a little bit about the, that plane uh, and the idea about that and what you did with End of Average.
1: As a scientist, my work has fallen squarely in what's called the science of individuality and simply stated, it's most of science, like most of society for the last hundred and something years has thought that you could understand individuals by ignoring them, by essentially studying groups of people, taking a group average, and then applying that to everyone. With the idea that like, the average might not be true for everyone, but it will be close enough for most people, right? And anyone that's dropped their kids off at a public school knows exactly what that is, right? Like, so what's been so fascinating is in the science I'm a part of, what we've learned is, not only is the average not terribly useful, it actually quite often literally represents nobody. It's this fiction that gets created through the statistics. And that sounds like a bumper sticker slogan, my kid's not average or something, but it's just a scientific fact. And that has led to breakthroughs in everything from precision medicine, to personalized nutrition, to a whole host of things where we realize when you take your, your, your distinctiveness seriously, it can actually lead to better breakthroughs in universal insights about human beings. And the one place where we've really struggled, though, and this is why I wrote End of Average, is that while we were learning that lesson in science, our systems were still really, really bound up in this idea of an average person. And we call that just standardization, right? One-size-fits-all cookie-cutter systems that turn out not to serve almost anybody. And, and just to to circle back, I'd opened the book with a story because I I was curious about like, where did this come from? And like, when did we start to question this? And it's the United States Air Force, right after World War II, where we almost lost a war because we didn't have enough pilots. And the way they had designed cockpits, you know, your, your challenge is that you have to design one cockpit to accommodate as many people as possible, right, that's the ideal. And so they had imagined, that what you would do is just take all people who were pilots at the time and measure them. And they measured them like 140 dimensions of size. And then you take the average of each dimension and design a cockpit. It won't be for everybody, but it'll be for most people. Well, one of my favorite people in the world, guy named Gilbert Daniels was, was charged by the Air Force to do this study, the largest study ever in the United States at the time of human body size, to calculate the new average, to design a better cockpit. He's at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and he's doing this tedious work. And what he realizes pretty quickly is something's wrong with the idea of the average body size. He, he does this simple experiment, and he publishes it through the military. And he literally just took the top 10 dimensions of size, like height, chest circumference, waist, you know, with those things. And he asks, how many of these pilots, by the way, 4,000 white male pilots who were picked because they fit in the cockpit to begin with, how many of them were average on those 10 dimensions? And the general's, told them, well, this is silly. It will be most of them. And it turned out to be zero, like zero. And it was even worse than that. If you just took the top three dimensions of size, less than 5% of the pilots were average on those three. So what they figure out is that by designing something for an average, you literally design something that fits nobody. And in something where you've gone from propeller planes to jet-powered aviation, that poor design translates into low performance, accidents, even deaths, right? So it's a life or death issue. So to their everlasting credit, the military who's not, they tend to be a more conservative institution, they moved fast and they literally banned the use of averages in design. They literally things like adjustable seats, which weren't available. So a lot of that trickled out into um, like human factors and ergonomics that led to things like adjustable seats in cars and something like that. So anyway, the Air Force figures it out and the result is, a dramatic increase in performance, and the unintended consequence was this, this expansion of diversity in terms of who could be a pilot. And so today, and I end the book with this, one of the, one of the best pilots we have in the country is this wafer-thin woman who literally would not have been allowed to be a pilot because she wouldn't have fit.
0: Well, I love about that too is, right, it's like here's a, here's, uh, if you've been in government or you've worked around government, when I read that, I thought to myself, well, of course, Right. That's what we do. I mean, we, we absolutely tailor things to the average. And to your point about the, the pilots, it works for nobody. Right. And, um, you know, what's interesting about it is, you know, use that example. Um, I thought about it when I was reading it about K-12 education and individualized learning. So, you know, here in the Florida legislature over the last 25 years, I know, you know, Governor Bush, well, you know, we've worked on school choice. You've been and talked about, you know, end of average at, at conferences dealing with school education, particularly as it relates to individualize learning and how one student is different from the next i'm i'm fond of saying that you know no child is the same right we all learn differently we are educated differently but a lot of times we've done something to the mean so when you were when you were writing end of average i mean you had all these things in mind you talk about how you know maybe science got there quicker you know the air force gets there quicker than maybe the social sciences or or education did you have education in mind as a, as a kind of a topic when you thought about how we design these systems to the average?
1: Yeah, because I feel like I'm, I'm really interested at a macro level in how we create institutions and culture that enable every individual in our society to pursue a fulfilling life and make their best contribution. And I believe that everyone has something to contribute, that their distinctiveness is part of their contribution. Um, and that we're all better off when we're each better off. And so I, I have a very positive sum view of the world. And so the problem I have is, okay, the workplace, broadly speaking, the market is where we're gonna manifest a lot of our contributions, fine. There's a lot of incentive structures that the market will move toward this pretty quickly. And you're already seeing with the shift in, in the future of work, like that's not going back to, to being a cog anytime soon. But unless you have the money, we, in a democracy, we feel okay compelling parents to turn their kids over to the government. And I don't mean that in some conspiracy theory. I just mean it like here, it's this school, <laughs> it's this teacher, and oh by the way, like in Massachusetts, if you take if if you have a kid who has a bunch of unexcused absences, they they could take your kid from you. So somehow we've allowed this to be okay that we compel. And if we were doing that with your mechanic, that would be outrage. So I, I, you know, the the famous um, educational philosopher like an ultra progressive John Dewey once said, the only justification for compulsory education in a democracy is the development of someone's individuality. That has to be the basis for public education. Well, I felt like it doesn't matter what we do in these other institutions. If the system of education we have literally not only treats people like they're the same, but people come out of that adopting the assumptions and norms of that system, we, can, we create our own chains, that it won't matter that we have a culture and we have a free market that would allow you to contribute your distinctness. You won't be able to do it. So I believe that if we don't get education right, the rest is just a, an uphill battle.
0: I love that. I, sh- I should say that, you know, we'll always take your kids and family to Florida, where we give you all kinds of freedom about how you want to educate them. But I, um to your point, right, I mean, here in the state, we have done you know, individualized learning, you know, pub, traditional public schools, charter schools, home schools. And what it's always interesting to me is is about how, like, you know, parents, you know, you know, your kids certainly better than I do, better than any institution does. And you're in the best kind of situation to, to educate them, which is, I think is, you know, kind of your point in, in end of average, right? Everybody's different. But I think that institutionally, I want to just kind of harp in on that point a little bit. You say how, listen, we, we create these institutional norms and someone we say, okay, this is how you have to do it. Just like the person who did it exactly before you the exact same way. We've carved out these district lines for schools and say so you have to go to this principal or this teacher because you live literally in this area. Now, we've yeah. blown that up here in Florida, but the rest of the country still has these lines that really come from what, like FDR era of, you know, housing, which is really based on discrimination to begin with. Um, so it's just all this terrible stuff. And then we say, hey, do it, do it like the last person. So, I mean, how have you seen the last couple of years, particularly as we relate to COVID, right? I mean, I'm sure you, you've got to have this experience writing about individualism and how we need to break up these normal things to, to, to let people thrive. And COVID to a certain extent has sped that up. So you as an author who spent all this time in this space, do you look at COVID, you know, outside of all, of course, the terrible things that have happened, we've lost people, but from the, the, the changes in institutions that are happening, do you look at that and say, hey, there's more good than bad that's happening here? I mean, what's, what's, your, what's your impression of it?
1: As a student of history, I, I, I care a lot about understanding the consequences of public shocks to systems, war, famine, you know, plagues, <laughs> like the pandemic stuff. And while everything's like unique in some ways, there are some reoccurring themes. So every time it leads to a shift in value, like people's values get prioritized and people start to care a lot about fulfilling those values. The biggest thing that holds us back from change is status quo bias, right? You might not like these systems, but you know how to behave in them. And so even if there could be better, it's just like the devil you know. Um, well, people have just gone through more than a year of not even being able to have the status quo, even if you, even if you wanted it, right? And they, and they realized a lot of them had opportunities to be exposed to things that they didn't realize were possible. Now, it's not going to stay that way forever, but I promise you it will not go back. Parents will never give back full control like they just won't it's not going to happen and parents got a chance to see what their kids were being taught and how they're being taught it and thinking hold on what's going on so we've been at my think tank we've actually been using private opinion methods to track priorities and um, satisfaction in education we had the data before the pandemic and we've collected waves of it through it man something fundamental has changed people clearly know what they want and don't want. Now, they rightly recognize that bell curve assessments are garbage, right? And what I don't like is a lot of the incumbent uh, defenders treat that as people don't want accountability, but that's not true at all. Parents have a heightened sense of accountability, but what they are now demanding is that the system is accountable to them, not to the next level up in the bureaucracy, and that that it is accountable for the things they value not what the experts tell them they should value. And that it is measured in a way that is purely about how their child is doing. Are they mastering the things that matter, not how they compare to the kids sitting next to them? And the faster that our experts recognize this shift, the more likely it is that this transition to something much better in education will be smooth and truly equitable. Um, But if, if we drag our heels and try to defend a system that's indefensible, the folks that the system wasn't serving are going to be the ones hurt the most by it. And when you think about someone's individuality mattering, and I don't mean that as selfishness, I mean that as my distinctiveness matters, and you don't get to ignore that in education or any other system. Some of that is done at the classroom level, right? We talk about personalized learning and mastery-based um, assessments. But at the end of the day, there's no one school that's going to be able to serve everybody's needs. And so what you need is a is you need pluralism. You need a lot of different examples. And The truth is, is public education and public schools are not the same thing, right? And we are deeply committed to an incredibly great public education. But what I want is like what most democracies have, which is many, many, many different providers serving as many different needs as possible and create enough of a market where parents' needs and students' needs actually went out.
0: Do you you see there's sometimes a disparity between Kind of the choices and the options that are out there and people's behavior. What I mean by that is, you know, I've got two little kids. I mean, you've got you've got kids. Somebody said to me, I got a six-year-old. He's in first grade, and they said, Hey, you know what sports he's playing? It's well, he's in coach pitch baseball. We have him in jujitsu. They said, Well, you know, the next year or two, you got to pick a sport. Picking myself, you know, I'm not trying to get my kid into like the NFL or play you know, Major League Baseball. Like I want him to like learn how to be part of a team. You know, you know, enjoy himself, care about being physically active. So. You know, do you see that sometimes, you know, despite the kind of plethora of options that are out there, whether it's in education or in sports, that there's kind of, again, this culture of, hey, you're going to miss out if you don't just pick that traditional lane and go full blast and ignore everything else.
1: You're exactly right. And so this is why, like, a lot of our work at Populous, you have to do both institutions and culture at the same time, because you can create the plethora of options But if I've internalized a mindset that the only way to a successful life for myself or for my children is to follow the one right way, right, and the rest of it's just risky, well, then it doesn't matter that you have more options. The good news is the American public, which we have more data on in this space than anybody else in the country, I'm certain, about their private values and aspirations, they are still deeply committed to fundamental American values it's just, they've learned to behave in a system that is contrary to that. Um, and so we feel very confident that as we socialize and, and allow people to recognize not only the shared values we still have, but the shifting opportunities that our institutions can make available to us now, that we can get somewhere very productive.
0: You and Populous have done, you know, done a great job, but you put out some papers about this disparity. So tell us a little bit about you know people privately think one way about what's important to them or what, how they view success, but then they, I guess they think other people view it completely differently, even if they're in the majority. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that idea and what you found.
1: Yeah, this has been one of the most surprising things and it's really where a lot of our work is now because one of the things you need for a society that really does create and develop people's distinctiveness is that there's a lot of social trust that has to be there, right? Because if you're not like me, Chris, and I say, okay, well, then either, I can either empower you to make choices for yourself because I don't think your choices are going to hurt me or the other option is to control you. So right now, social trust is just plummeted in our country. And we believe that one of the problems is like the moral foundation of all trust is shared values, right? That kind of makes sense. If I believe, despite all our differences, if I believe you share my commitment to the dignity of every individual or whatever, I'll probably trust you. So what we found in our private opinion research is that, and this won't be terribly surprising to you, what people are willing to say out loud is not necessarily what they really believe. That might be the the most obvious statement to anybody uh, listening, but we have methods to get around the distorting effects of social pressure and other things to get an accurate read on people's private values. So what we find over and over again, whether we're talking about the kind of lives people wanna live in terms of their view of success, their aspirations for the country or their priorities for our institutions like education, what we find over and over again is incredible common ground privately across demographics and the real problem is we don't believe that most people share our values so i'll give you a really funny one so in our success index which looked at across more than 70 different possible trade-off priorities for a successful life and again we use methods you can't game it's it's pretty it's pretty cool we can get a, a, a literally a rank order of your private priorities so when we ask what they think most Americans would say, right? In the same instrument. The number one thing that we believe most Americans care about is being famous. And it's, it's like number one by a mile. We think for sure, this is what most people want out of life. In private, it is dead last, dead last. Now, imagine if you think, the same thing goes with like, most people privately are positive some. They believe that your win doesn't have to hurt me, it can actually benefit me. But they are they are convinced that the overwhelming majority of americans see the world as zero sum somebody has to lose well just think about how you how that would change the way you interact with your neighbors your colleagues strangers if you genuinely think that they're looking at you as pure competition like there's just no way that you're going to like engage so we've seen this across the board the most um important thing to me right now is there's a sense in the country, that something has changed, that we've lost our values, that we no longer believe in core American values, that is demonstrably false. I have to say, like, it is across all demographics, our highest priorities for the future of the country are still the fulfillment of traditional American values. But we are convinced that most people don't hold them anymore. And the problem with this, what we call collective illusion, right, is when you think the majority believe something that they don't, right? Okay, as a species, humans have a conformity bias. It's built into our brain. We would much rather, we prefer to be with the group than against it. That will pull me to behave in ways that keep me close to my group. We all know that. We all do that the way we dress, the way we talk, (laughs) things we do to be with the group. So what happens when you're wrong about the group? You know, In education, uh, for example, overwhelming majority of parents in the country do not want standardized education they do not want one-size-fits-all and they do not want things like the SAT they don't want bell curve tests dictating them but they are convinced that most parents do okay well if i feel the need to conform and be close to my group i'm going to behave in ways that i think the group wants so what we end up seeing is a lot of people literally lying about their preferences or just saying nothing because they don't want to be outside their group so a lot of our work at Populous is puncturing those illusions in a way as a way to restore the social trust needed to have a culture that empowers individuals to make their best contributions.
0: One of one of my favorite things about, about what you guys have done at Populous is, you know, so we talked about end of average. You know, you wrote a book called Dark Horse, which I'll let you characterize it, but I kind of took it as the continuation of end of average in the sense that here are people, individuals who have now lived this out, like like Todd Rose, by the way, who who maybe had a tr- a non-traditional path to great success that if you would have gone back and you knew them 20 years before you would have never pictured that they would have ended up picking this non-traditional path and encouraging people hey that non-traditional path is out there for you and maybe the institutions need to adapt to allow more opportunity for dark horses. And I'll I'll say this, because I want you to talk about it a little bit. Outside this building that we're in right now, which is the Florida Capitol, we passed a bill last year, uh, House Bill 1507, which literally blew up our workforce system. I know know, you've seen it, I've sent it to you. But I can tell you this, outside of this building, the staff and the members who worked on that bill, there's probably no person in America who had more influence on that final product than you, than on your work um, in both of your books, because we took it to heart that we don't do a good job as as a country, as political institutions, to really create p- opportunity for people. So, so talk to us about a little bit about dark horse and you know why you did that and what you were trying to get at and what you were trying to do in, in changing how we how we adapt institutions to individuals.
1: Yeah, first of all, thank you. That means a lot to me. I I really appreciate that. Yeah. So it's funny. You're, you're exactly right. So I wrote end of average and. It became a, a bestseller and a business. I, I, I did not expect that, right? In end of average, I had profiled companies that I thought were doing a, a decent job um, dealing with individuality. When I was at these companies, I kept meeting people who had these incredible backstories, like really crazy, and I kept wondering, how did you get here? Like, it's cool that you wound up at Costco and you're like living your best life, but like how are you the buyer for wine at Costco with no background? And Like, like, how did you get there? Um, and so I got really curious about that. And I thought, well, like somebody has to have studied these sort of non-traditional paths, but I couldn't find anything. And so with a colleague of mine, we actually started this dark horse project at Harvard and it was just literally like riding a wave of success from end of average. It was like, I got to do whatever I wanted. And I'm like, I want to know about this. And it was funny. Cause I'm a really hard quant person. Like, hard numbers person, Dark Horse was based on the first qualitative research that I'd ever done. And I have to say, I learned, it turns out you can learn a lot from listening to people. <laughs> like, <laughs> surprise, right? But um, we had some famous people, but we didn't include, it was like, I wanted everyday people who w- were living with real constraints. Cause listen, if, at some point, if you have so much money, like, okay, fine. So you can go off and do your own thing. There's really like, you can, <laughs> I wanted to know people like me, that somehow managed to carve a path out that wasn't that one size fits all path and yet were objectively successful. Like, so, so we had hundreds of people across all walks of life in every occupation you could imagine. And I, I gotta be honest, what came out of it is not what I thought was gonna come out of it. So I actually thought, first of all, maybe it, there's nothing they have in common, but my hypothesis was that I thought they would all be like Richard Branson. By that I mean, if you know Sir Richard, he genuinely takes pleasure in bucking the system. Like like that is just part of it. I don't think he'd ever do anything that was straight down the fairway,
0: right? Like it's just- your pleasure, yeah.
1: Yeah, it is. And I thought maybe you have to have that kind of personality where you just don't care, right? And you get a little bit of pleasure about this. And very quickly found out that's just not true. There were people, most of them were reluctant, right? And what they had in common, and I did not like this answer at first, was they kept talking about, the way they thought about a successful life. And it was very different. It was all about like fulfillment and purpose and meaning. And like-
0: I Like, like how am I gonna quantify that? Yeah, I,
1: I actually literally remember like people would flat out say these things and I was like, oh, this is so squishy. What am I supposed to do with this? And I we kept wanting to ask them how they got good at things. And they wanted to talk about how they discovered what mattered most to them and who they were. So we did lean into that and what we found what, what allowed these people to be successful, what looked like very high risk sorts of paths that you go, well, I'm glad that worked for you, but there's no lesson to learn here. Cause that like, there were like four things that they knew that, that turned that pursuit of fulfillment into a reliable path to excellence. And, you know, it, it's funny because we all sort of bought into this idea that excellence and fulfillment are almost inverted. Like do the thing you're supposed to do, get really good at it, play the game, and then happiness comes on the back end somehow. Like They don't quite tell you how that equation works, but, like, but you, you and I both know lots of people who are very good at what they do and they're miserable. And it's just like, so, so this idea that understanding how to pursue a fulfilling life is the most reliable way to a life of excellence, I thought was very insightful. And what they gave us was a roadmap for what it means. What do you got to know about yourself? What, what, what mindset skills do you need to be able to do this for yourself? And what I loved about it is my own background before doing the Dark Horse Project, if you would have said, do, do I want my own children to follow my path? I would have said no, because it was too idiosyncratic. Now I would say, this is a good path. The, the Dark Horse path is a good path. Um, I have to say one thing, and I, I'm sorry to drag it out, but like I had this experience with my youngest son who just gra- he was graduating college. And Dark Horse was out and I was on tour for it. And, you know, it was doing well. It was a bestseller as well. It was great. I'm very proud of that. And I get a text from my son and he says, we need to talk. And I was like, well, that can't be good. I mean, you know, I, I said, well, I'll be home a couple of days. So I come home and he's got Dark Horse, dog-eared and sticky notes <laughs> all out of it. And You're about just, to get
0: ambushed. Yeah. Uh-huh.
1: And he says, look, I, I know I just went through college. He got a degree in mechanical engineering. And he started to talk about like the soul crushing aspect of what he thought was going to happen and what had happened. And he felt like he was trapped because he had spent our money on it at college. And somehow he felt like, I just need to go do this. So, so we sat and, and worked through it. And I had this moment of like, well, no, no, no. I meant this for other people. <laughs> <laughs> you just got to stick with the path right now. But like, uh, and what's been so fun is to like, have him really understand his own motivations, understand how to put together a life that he's excited about and how to take responsibility for that. And it's just been so wonderful to to watch this. And, And I'll say, the only reason there are dark horses is because of our standardized system. If we do what we were just talking about before, the term dark horse won't exist. This will just be people pursuing fulfilling lives. And the fact that we are individuals means that it will not be the exact same for everyone.
0: That's awesome. And I'm glad that you said the thing about, hey, listen, I'm a dad. Here you are, the guy writing the book and your own son's like, hey, listen, I didn't want to I don't want to break this to you. But now I feel like I have the confidence since you're telling the world about it. But I also think that's true of, you know, policymakers, right? So when we did the workforce bill, um, in large part because of the works like, like what you've done and what Populous has done, we try to create all these pathways, right? You know, nationally recognized certifications. You write about credentialing, about, you know, just give people options. Google, right, has now moved to, we don't care if you went to Stanford, if you're right for the job, right? So, so how are we adapting? Um, but I also think sometimes as policymakers, right, we say, okay, well, yeah, we agree with that but maybe are are we willing to tell our own children that we agree with that? So I think that it's interesting, like as a parent, when I read your books, I'm thinking to myself, okay, am I willing to give my children a wide berth, right? So that they can figure out what's going to give them fulfilling lives and really use that as the compass, as opposed to you have to go to a four-year college and then you, have, you should go get a, you know, a higher education degree. That might not be them. And um, I think we've tried to design a system. So, and how have you seen, you know, credentialing and things like that, that are, you know, kind of more in the policy realm. How have you seen that interplay with people finding purposeful you know fulfillment in their workforce? And work-
1: So it's a, a great question. First of all, happy if anyone wants to go to college, happy if they want to get a doctorate like I did. All I'm interested in is a system and a culture that enables every single individual to realize their full potential, make their best contribution. And that is possible, that is available to us as an American society today. We have the technology, we have the wealth, we have the know-how, and we have the need. And so um, what I think is so important here is our institution of higher education, which has historically been this gatekeeper of opportunity in a standardized society, it's not doing its job. We know that, right? In part because our economy has become so diverse. Like, like you think about it, at this point, if you're good at something. We can probably turn it into something. (laughs) Like it's like it's it's unbelievable. You can be a YouTuber.
0: You can be a YouTuber.
1: I mean, it really like, and and yet we're still stuck in this idea that the safe path is literally to go through a system in which you become more and more like everybody else. The most important thing, if 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 I was gonna say to a parent, what does it mean to have your parent, your child prepared for the modern economy? Listen, if you're an interchangeable part. It's getting done by robots. I'm sorry, like it's just or, or AI, like it is not. And I don't care if that's first year law student, like if things are getting done. If it can, if it's routinized, you're in trouble. So, what's left for us, and this is the good news, is that what prepared means is know what matters to you, know what is a fulfilling left to you, find your strengths and your passions, and turn that into productive work. That's exciting, right? Now, what used to be the opportunity, which is this bureaucratized system of higher education, is now the, the stranglehold, right? Because think about how many companies, and we've been, we've been talking to a lot of CEOs around the country about why it is they keep going back to, well, you got to have a four-year degree. I'm like, really? For this job? Like You actually cannot point to why it is a four-year degree would be even remotely relevant. And it comes down to two things. One, they don't know how else to hire right? They don't have the other tools, but, but we're working to change that. We've got some good partnerships and a lot of other people are doing that as well. And also it's like litigation. They worry about getting sued. So it's like, they're not doing it because they think this is the best thing to do. But what we've seen is as companies and companies have to take the lead because when we talk to parents and the general public about who they trust to tell them it's okay to deviate from this, the path that we've been told all our lives is the safe path. It's local and regional employers. And so they, don't, they need to speak up and say, look, we are shifting to credentials because it's better for us. I just need to know that you are qualified to do the work that I need you to do. And what, what employers have found, and I think this is where enterprising CEOs are figuring this out fast, is where most people can't get people to work for them, the faster you figure out how to find someone that didn't have to go and take on six figures of debt, you get them earlier. They're hungrier. And and frankly, they're a better value. And so, like like I think this shift to credentialing is probably the most important linchpin shift that will have downstream consequences into the economy, but also backwards into education as we realize an undifferentiated diploma is just not useful anymore.
0: That's awesome. I mean, and you you contributed right to our policy change. I mean, part of that that education bureaucracy is look, we set, I mean, we got we to gotta own this, right? I mean, we said this here in, in Florida is like, we got to own that, like we set the incentives. So we can't blame these institutions for kind of going towards the incentives when we set the wrong carrots um, and, when and we place, put in place the wrong stick. So, you know, our state colleges now in Florida under the, that bill 1507. Now they have to offer at least three uh, credentials where they say, all right, not only do we offer these three in addition to all these others, but these three, if you come here and you get it and you don't have a job in this field in six months, we're going to give you your money back because, like, we we failed. Like, we picked the wrong three uh, to offer for you, and that's that's based on region. They can pick whatever three they feel like is in the marketplace, but we really did that exactly for that reason because we we hadn't set we hadn't set the incentives in the right place to kind of help help the individual. So, you know, we're trying to do that in government, which of course is hard. Uh, but I think that to your point, you know, the private the private sector is is doing that now.
1: And I think I I think you're exactly right in. Um show me the incentives and I'll show you the behavior. And sometimes we um, have unintentional consequences for the incentives we create. But what I find fascinating in higher ed and especially in the public institutions, there are so many great people in those institutions who genuinely want to do the right thing, but they are incentivized to go against those instincts. right? And in a very real sense, in some ways they couldn't, or they are really putting at risk the whole enterprise so And I think what you've done is now allow them to align to their own values and make those institutions in service of allowing people to live the kind of lives that they want to live. And, and the bet is, and I think we share this conviction, that it, when you bet on people, truly bet on people, we create an abundance, whether we are talking about material abundance in a, in a free market or psychological abundance in terms of happiness and flourishing, which we all benefit from
0: and all of your work that you've done now in this this whole space about purpose fulfillment and finding the right purpose whether that's in a credential or four year education or a phd if if you could rewind the clock and go back to you know now you're a, you know you're a young you young dad your kids are very little kind of start over but now you have all the background of all the work that you've done over the years in this space is there something that you would do or or say differently
1: it was really alarming to me given who i am and what i do for a living that somehow my kids had internalized that there was the right way to do it and that they felt a lot of pressure to to follow that path. I didn't believe I had taught them that, but when I look back on it, I realized those formative years when they're young and they're trying to understand, you know, I'm glad we put them in public schools in Cambridge. I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that, but they internalized a view of what success looked like and and what validated them as a student and as a person that I think was pretty toxic. And in fact, with my oldest son, he did so well. We just didn't like what, as he got ready to apply to colleges, what that had done to him in terms of it makes kids selfish and it ruins their willingness to explore things. So we had him take a gap year and had him go work and serve. And he came back a completely different person and that changed this trajectory. So What I would do different is I would have started, like, frankly, I would literally pursue the dark horse. ideas. like kids need to figure out the most important thing a young child starts to learn is how to explore what their real motivations are, what really lights them up. And it is so particular. It is not universal. And you start in there and in in dark horse, I wrote about some strategies of how you do that. And I, I wish I would have had more of those conversations and, and modeled that for my kids.
0: Well, thank, thanks for sharing that. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take that because uh, I got the, the first grader and the pre ker So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to learn from that. Um, but, you know, just to, just to wrap up here, you mentioned earlier about this concept of collective illusions and, and how that fits into individuals. You have a book coming out by that name. So if give, a, give you know, the folks who listen, just a little, little teaser about what to expect.
1: Yeah, so this book comes out February 1st is really about this idea of collective illusions, about like, not just the fact that we are so wrong about each other, In this country but why that's true and it it has to do with a combination of our biology and our technologies like how could you be so sure you know what the majority thinks when you're wrong about that and it's your brain takes a shortcut when estimating what the majority thinks and it's simply the loudest voices repeated the most are the majority the problem is you take something like social media now if you get fringe voices retweeted like crazy, and it's only 5,000 people, but it sure feels like everybody. No kidding, Um, China and Russia figured this out. So when we talk about interference, they're not spreading lies, they're literally using bots to go into conservative Twitter, liberal Twitter, find the fringe ideas, and then they amplify those insights. And so now if I identify, say, as a Republican, and it's part of my identity. And I'm like, wait, we believe that we believe Putin's a good guy. I didn't know that. That's weird, right? Like, and so enough of us will no, Nobody off. told
0: me that. I missed that. I missed but the memo. Really, yeah. I, I
1: missed the memo. And it's like, there's no way that 40% of Republicans think Putin's a good guy. I'm sorry. Like, that's just not. But so what happens is they, they fully understand that if they can manipulate through vocal fringe, what most people perceive as the consensus we will do the destroying of ourselves for ourselves so we're seeing this hyperpolarization. They call it like affective polarization because we hate each other and we don't even know why. So I believe that a big chunk of that is not based on reality. It's based on collective illusions. And we've got plenty of data to back that up. And the good news about collective illusion. So there's bad news, good news, and then I'll, I'll stop talking. The bad news is if you don't puncture the illusion, this generation's collective illusions become next generation's private opinion. So remember I brought up the idea of Fame and success. UCLA, and I'll get the exact dates wrong, but a ballpark, I'll be right. They've been studying the effects of media on middle school kids for many, many years. And for the most part, up until just a few years ago, the top things that that kids internalized were all character related. It's great. A few years ago, it changed and it hasn't changed back. The number one thing is I want to be famous. I want to be a YouTube star. One kid, the last report said, I want to have a million followers. Couldn't say it what didn't really matter, right? We don't care about fame, but we believe we care about fame. So we advertise to that. We tell stories about that and our kids internalize that, right? It's bad enough that we're gonna, our kids are gonna internalize a view, uh, an empty view of life that will make them miserable. What happens when it is an illusion about our fundamental commitment to American values, to individual rights, to human dignity, equal opportunity, what happens when that goes away, not because we actually didn't believe it anymore, but simply because we thought we didn't believe it anymore. So that's the downside, right? The upside is illusions are powerful, but they're fragile because they're based on a lie. And as I lay out in the book, there is something each one of us has to take responsibility for to, to live a life of congruence that actually makes those illusions impossible and will allow us to get out of this culture, cultural wasteland that we're in right now.
0: Well, I, I, I'm excited for people to read your book. I, I think it's going to be your best work. Um, and I think your other work has been awesome. And I think particularly your point about the kind of the Twitter robes Robespierre's uh, that are out there, you know, scouring the Twitter land for, for victims um, is really indicative of kind of the times we're living in. So uh, Todd, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. And thank you very much on behalf of the members of the Florida House for you know, all the work that you did and working with us. To make sure we opened up our workforce uh, opportunities for for all the dark horses out there. So thanks for that.
1: Thank you.